Well, I have preached six sermons on the first 18 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 1, which is not even half of the chapter. So if we do the math, maybe we shouldn't, but if we do the math at this rate, it will take 12 weeks to get through every chapter. There are 34 chapters in Deuteronomy, which is 408 weeks or 7.8 years. Unless, of course, you include any vacation or mission trip I may take, and then we're looking about eight and a half or nine years. You good with that? I I hope that's not how this all is going to happen. But you know what? It would suit me just fine if it did. Because I have so loved preaching the truth from the book of Deuteronomy. Seeing in it the character of God and, and how good he is and how gracious and how patient seeing how he is a just God, a God of justice all the time. God does what is right. That's who he is. Seeing demonstrated over and over his care for and his provision for his people. Seeing over and over again the kind of people that he calls us to be, the kind of lives he calls us to do, the kind of things he wants to see us doing in our community and knowing, knowing that being those kind of people And doing those kind of things will bring blessing to us here. Bring blessing to the community of Charleston for Jesus' sake. And that's what we want, isn't it? It's made me ask, and I hope it's made you ask questions like this. What is it that God wants us to do here in this spot which he has placed us? I wonder how often we ask him, Lord, what do you want us to do as Redeemer Presbyterian Church here in this spot where you have placed us? And when God answers that question about what he wants us to do, and when the thing that he asks us to do is something that we never thought about asking, when the thing that he asks us to do is something that we never even imagined we could do or would do or should do, how will we do it? The only way that we'll be able to do it is with faith and trust. That's always what's required. If the thing God asks us to do is bigger than we are, then we must, in faith and trust, look to God for the strength to surmount that big thing that he's called us to do. If the thing that he calls us to do requires resources that we don't have, then we must, in faith and trust, look to him to provide the resources that we need to do the thing that he wants us to do. So this morning, we together need to look and talk, and think, and pray about faith and trust to ask God to implant it where it doesn't exist. If there's not faith, if there's not trust in this room this morning, Lord, implant it. If that faith and trust is weak, Lord, strengthen it. If that faith and trust is pleasant and it's burning, is present and it's burning, we need to ask the Lord, you know, turn it into a a raging fire of faith and trust in you. That's what we pray for the Lord to do this morning as we come once again to his word. And if you have your Bible open to Deuteronomy chapter 1, I'm going to ask you to stand as we move on this morning uh, to chapter to verse 19. We're going to hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19, this is the word of the Lord. Then as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went toward the hill country of the Amorites, through all that vast and dreadful desert that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. And then I said to you, 
You have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, Let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, and so I selected twelve of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country, and they came to the valley of Eshkol and and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. And so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you. As he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the desert. There you saw how the Lord carried you. As a father carries his son, all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God, who went ahead of you on your journey, in fire by night and in a cloud by day, to to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. And when the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, Not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your forefathers, except Caleb. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, You shall never enter it either, but your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask now once again that you would bless to our understanding your word that we have read this morning. Spirit of God, we pray that you would be our teacher, open our eyes to see your truth, open our minds to understand it, and open our hearts to respond to it, Lord. May our hands move in concert with with our heart and mind as we understand your truth. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. First thing I want us to consider this morning is that we need to be careful. You need to be careful what you ask for. Look again with me in verse 21. It says there, See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. Don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. Clearly and unequivocally, this is the will of God for his people. Go up and take possession of the land. Now, what is a faith response? What is a trust response? to the clear command of the voice of the Lord. Well, a faith response is to go. But how do these people respond? Look in verse 22. 
Well, let us send some men up ahead to spy out the land and bring back our reports to us. Boy, is this not parenting in a nutshell? If we had a dime for every time we ask our children to do something, but we get back from them, okay, but first let me dot, dot, dot. And then the negotiations begin, don't they? Negotiations to do it in their way according to their schedule. And if you ever hear, sure, Dad, I'll get right on that right away. You know, your heart, or or at least you reach for a Q-tip. Excuse me, I don't think I heard what I just thought I heard. But, But that shouldn't surprise us who are parents, should it? Because before we were parents, we were children who are just as proficient in negotiating as our own children are. Where do you think they learn it? It's what we all do. We all want to negotiate. And so God says, go and take possession of the land, but his people, his children, negotiate. Why? What's behind the negotiation? What's behind the hesitancy to obey right away? What motivated their desire to have a a sneak preview of the promised land before they would enter it as God commanded? Did they want to see more of the land so that they could trust God more? Or was it because they needed more details so they would know ahead of time how they thought that God might just work out the situation for them? More trust or less trust? And what about us? Do we need, do we need more details? Do we need even a sneak preview into the future if we could get it? Because we trust so much? Or because we don't trust enough? Because we want to know ahead of time exactly how we think God might possibly work this situation out for us. We know the answer to the next question. What if the Israelites would have responded, Okay, yeah, go, we're going to go, let's move out right now. What would have happened? God would without a doubt have given them the promised land because he promised he would. But that's not what happened. And we read about what happened in the account of this story in Numbers chapter 13. We read, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. And so it's a case of you asked for it, you got it. God turned their request to send the spies into his command. You want spies? Okay, now I command it. Now you send spies, 12 of them. Lang in his commentary says that God granted their request to send the spies so that the deep purposes of the heart should come into the light and be overcome or controlled. That the deep purposes of the heart should come into light and be overcome or controlled. And what was in their heart was, uh, was fear and lack of trust in God. But the promised land was to be possessed and conquered by faith and nothing else. And so the people needed to see, okay, let it come out. What really is in your heart? So that what was in their heart could either be conquered or at least controlled. So God gave them what they wanted. They wanted a report from the spies. They got it. But it would have been better for the people if they had never heard this report from the spies because what they heard crushed them. It caused them to despair, and it denied them the privilege, those who who would not obey, of ever seeing the promised land. Sometimes it's better not to know, really. It's better just to trust. 
It's better to be careful what we ask for if what we ask for is motivated by faithless fear. Because what the spies saw when they entered the land was the beauty of it. They saw the bounty of it. It was an amazing land, just as God had promised it would be. You know, they should have trusted God. But dwelling in the midst of the bounty, dwelling in the midst of the beauty, were the beasts of the land. And all three of them were dwelling together. But the beasts overshadowed everything else. The beasts overshadowed overshadowed the beauty and the bounty and the promise of God. The people living there, the Amorites, they were physically superior, stronger and taller than the Israelites. Over in chapter 3, we read about one of their kings, Og, who who was a, a giant. He was from the race of giants. His bed was made of iron and was more than 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. That was King Og's bed. Goliath came from this race of people. They were intimidating. The Amorites were developed enough and talented enough to build cities, wonderful cities. Militarily, they were strong. The walls around their cities appeared to go up to the sky. The Israelites were just former slaves. And they lived in tents, wandering around in the desert. And so the information that the Israelites wanted, but did not need, The little peek into the future that they asked for scared them into giving up the beauty and the bounty of their inheritance and it caused them to give up on God. The people listened to the report of the ten spies who said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. Only two spies, Joshua and Caleb, said we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. They all saw exactly the same thing. All 12 spies. Ten saw through fear. Two saw through faith. Now once again, I've been doing my math this week. And if I've done my math correctly, only 17% had faith. We can. 83% had fear. We can't. And so I think you and I would do well to remember that statistic right now. So that we can combat that statistic. Why should it ever be true? Why should it ever be true among people who are indwelled by the Spirit of the living God that when we look at a situation, 83% look at it in fear and 17% look in faith. Why should that ever be true? By people indwelled with the Spirit of the living God. Which group would you be in? And if you're in the 83% who react in and are motivated by fear, how do you get out of that group? How do you get out of the 83% and move over and and become a person of faith? You and I have got to figure out the answer to that question. What will it take to make us people of faith? And here's why we have to answer that question. We have to. Because there is not a day that goes by in any of our lives as long as we live on this earth, that we are not going to have to live by faith. Every day, something is going to call us to believe that what God has said is true. Whether it's some kind of overwhelming situation in our life, some kind of devastating situation, or whether it's simply having to remember and to cling to the truth that once again, in spite of our sin, 
by faith in Jesus, we are sons and daughters of the living God. He'll forgive us. He'll hold on to us. He's not going to let us go. And we're going to make it to the end. Something is going to require you to live by faith. Because all of us face in this world temptations that, that surround us, that practically beg us to yield to them and to give in to sin. The consequences of sin in this world that produce thorn and thistles that we have to battle every day. The sickness and death and tragedy that mark a fallen world call for faith. Jesus told this story, this parable in Matthew 13. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field, his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And they grew up together. And the servants asked him, Do you want us to pull up the weeds? No, the master answered, because... While you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. This isn't a parable about the church, though it could apply. This is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven as it exists right now here on earth. It's about the work of the enemy that we call Satan, who sows discord and disease and destruction wherever he goes, even when he disguises himself, as Scripture says he does, as an angel of light. And until the Lord returns, your enemy and my enemy will be striking, striking, striking at our faith. Sowing seeds of doubt, sowing seeds of fear and faithlessness and despair and rebellion. Wheat and tears, they always will be growing together. They come together in a package in this world. And so we will never be beyond our need for faith to overcome those challenges, whether they come in the form of people or daunting obstacles or sickness or disaster. We will never, 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 never in this life be past our need for faith to defeat the fear in all its forms in this world. And so that's where the fiercest battle takes place in your heart and in mine. The battle is for our faith. Let's look at the battle in this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Ladies and gentlemen, in the right corner we have dressed in dazzling white and representing the absolute truth, the word of the living God. In the left corner we have dressed in black and representing lies Fear and faithlessness. And the situation in life that requires faith is what rings the bell and the two go at it. And I'm not representing these two as equal. God in his glorious truth and Satan in his lies, they're not equal. God is the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God of the universe. I'm talking about the battle right here in our hearts. So look at verse 21. Look at verse 21. Here's round one. The word of God comes out and it takes the center of the ring. See, the Lord has given you the land. Go and take possession of it. And the truth of God and the word of God should have stood in the center of the ring unchallenged. But that's not what happened. The challenger comes out from his corner. Faithlessness and fear. And look at the response. Let's send spies ahead to spy out the land for us. And so there it is. Fear wanting to go to the mat with the truth of God. 
Now look at verse 2. Here's round 2. The good news, the truth, comes out, reported by Joshua and Caleb, men of faith. It's a good land the Lord is giving to us. Let's go and take it. But here comes a challenger. Verse 27. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to destroy us. Now look in verse 29. Here comes round 3. Out comes the word of God again from its corner. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid. The Lord your God is going before you and he will fight for you. But here comes the challenger from its corner. Verse 32. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God. And so what now is the decision from the judges? Round one. God says, go. Fear says, send spies. The spies are sent. Fear wins. Round two. The truth says, the Lord is giving us a good land. Fear says, do not go into the good land of the Lord. The people do not go. Ding, ding, ding. Round two. Fear wins. Round three. Truth says, do not be terrified or afraid. The Lord will fight for you. Fear says, do not trust in the Lord. The people did not trust in the Lord. So ding, ding, ding. The winner of round three and the entire match, fear and faithlessness. Yay! Why aren't you cheering? You don't cheer because no one wants to see fear and faithlessness defeat trust and faith in the Word of God and in the God of the Word. You don't want to see it in your life either. You want faith to win. You want trust to win. You want to be able to stand up to the giants in your life. You want to face the overwhelming present and the unknown future with strength and courage and with a song in your heart. Then why don't we? Because too often we are looking at or looking for the wrong thing. We want evidence. We want signs. We want wonders. Or we'll just take a little more information to see if this is something we can handle on our own just in case God doesn't show up to help us out. But none of that helped the Israelites. None of it. The Red Sea. The manna. The water that came gushing from the rock in the desert when they were thirsty. And even if they hadn't gotten those, they could look up right in this moment of their disobedience and see the cloud by which God led them, the cloud that sheltered them from the blazing sun of the desert. They could look up at night and see the pillar of fire that gave them warmth against the chill of the desert night and provided light against whatever dangers may be lurking in the darkness. But none of that helped. Even what they saw, they didn't believe because that's not what faith is. 2 Corinthians 5-7 We live by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11-1 Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not what? See. Certain of what we can't see with our eyes. Faith is always what we believe, that of which we are convinced. Sometimes we may get to see if the Lord grants that, but then it's not faith anymore. Romans 1.17 For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Faith. Galatians 3.11 Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. 
We must live by faith. We must. And that faith is in what we do not see, but what we know to be true. And what's true is the gospel. The gospel is true. Is that right? The gospel is the source of our faith. And so you and I go to the cross, to the spot where the ultimate battle was fought and won. And there was Jesus on the cross, taunted by those who passed by. Save yourself if you can. And he could have. He could have called on the host of heaven to come to his rescue. But he battled the temptation of pride to prove himself the strong and mighty king of the universe that he was. And he stayed. He stayed on the cross until his work there was done. He battled doubt and despair as he was taking on the sin of the world. Your sin and my sin. Taking it on, saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he won that battle too. He won the physical battle of excruciating pain of crucifixion. He didn't call on the angels to come and minister to him as he ha- as they had done at other times in his life on earth. He didn't command the heavens to open up and, and pour down rain on his parched, feverish body. He finished his work. And when the end came, he said, Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit because he knew that his father would receive him. Trust in his father defeated the darkness and the doubt and the pain of fear. Colossians 2.15 Speaking of Jesus. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Disarmed them. That means to strip off, just like you would do with clothes, to strip them off. And the background for that word disarmed is the custom in the Middle East that when a man of high power was deposed from office, he had to publicly take off the robes of that office. And that's what God did. When by his power he raised Christ from the dead, proving him to be both God and king, he stripped Satan. Jesus went right up to the enemy and stripped him naked and exposed him. Why do you think he is so angry? Why do you think he's against us? Why do you think he's against the church? Because he's been exposed for what he truly is. And so the background of the word is not a a battlefield, but the royal court. Satan is not the king. Jesus is the king. And the fear that he uses a weapon. Jesus snatched it, stripped it right out of his hand. Hebrews 2.14 So that by his death, Jesus might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And so therefore, Peter preaches, the very first time he preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And that's what you have, you and I have to remember. Every time There is a battle for our faith. Our enemy is disarmed. He's helpless because Jesus is both Lord and King by the power of God himself. Trust him. Have faith in him. Look at the cross. 
The battle's won. It's finished, Jesus said, and he proved his power there. And so you and I, we we fix our minds and we fix our hearts on this truth. It's the only antidote that we have. The only antidote we have against fear and faithlessness. It's the only way we will live a life of faith and trust. God doesn't need to do anything more for you or for me than he's already done. And even if he did something else, it wouldn't be nearly as wonderful and powerful as what he has already done for us. And finally, there's one more thing that you and I can do if we will be people of faith and trust. And that is that you and I, we've got to encourage each other with words of faith and trust. Look in verse 27. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. Grumble means to grouse, slander, whisper, murmur, backbite, find fault. What did they grumble about? Probably everything. God, what he was doing, why he brought them to the desert, Moses, what kind of leader is he? You know, what's up with that? The promised land? Look, 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 look at all the problems there. There's never a shortage of topics to complain about. Have you, have you uh, understood that in your life? There's never a shortage of topics to complain and grumble about. And just by virtue of the fact that grumbling is usually done in your tent and not out in the open is pretty good indication that no good is going to come from it. Faith is not going to come from it anyway, and that's for sure. Because if these people hadn't encouraged each other to fear and faithlessness, if these people had spoken words of faith and trust to each other, we would be reading a different story right now, this morning. And so we take a lesson. We take a lesson from that. If we find ourselves huddled up somewhere with someone, back in a corner somewhere, whispering by the water cooler, on the elevator, in the hallway, grumbling together about something or someone, stop! Stop! We're not on a good path. And it's not going to end well. Because in the end, the end of our grumbling, something, someone is going to be damaged or destroyed or devastated. That's what's going to happen from grumbling and complaining. And if what we were doing was good, we would do it out in the open anyway. And not just in our tents or in a secret place. And we wouldn't walk away from conversations with people seething or upset or angry. So imagine, if you will. What would happen if you said to the person that you were just getting ready to get into a good grumbling session with, say you're back there in the corner of the sanctuary and you said, look, look, here are kneelers in these pews. Let's pull one down and let's get on our knees and let's pray for that person. Let's pray for that situation. What do you think might happen? See, we grumble. I grumble. I do. You grumble. And we complain because we fear that God is not in control. We grumble and we complain because we fear that God doesn't know what's going on. Because we fear that He doesn't see. Or we fear that He doesn't care. Or we fear that He's not going to act the way we want Him to anyway. So instead of talking to Him, we grumble to others. But let's do this. Let's speak words of truth to one another. Let's speak words of hope 
to one another. Let's speak words of faith to one another. Let's speak the gospel to one another and about one another. And you know what will happen? All of us together will be strengthened in our faith. Let's remind one another about who God is and what he has already done and what we know that he can do in us and through us. Because if you and I, together as a church, will accomplish anything of lasting value for the kingdom of God here in Charleston, especially the big, beyond-us things that he may ask of us, we must be people of faith who say not, we can't, but who say, in Christ, we can. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word and for your truth. We thank you especially that in your word, you give us not only uh, the story and the picture of who you are and, and your character, but Lord, throughout your word are people, humans, just like us. And they're part of the story too. And their weaknesses are our weaknesses. We, we're not better than they are. We're the same as they are. And we struggle with the same things that they struggled with. And that struggle is always uh, against uh, fear and faithless, faithlessness. We, we, we are fearful people, Lord. It seems to be our nature. We thank you that your spirit changes our nature, who we are, makes us different people than we would be apart from your spirit indwelling us. And so as people indwelled by the Spirit of God. I pray, Lord, that you would make us people of faith and that our faith would lead us to action. Our faith and trust in you would ask big things from you. That our faith and trust would be great enough that we would even be silent before you and say, Lord, what would you have us do? And not be afraid to listen to the answer that you may give to us. Because whatever it is, we have faith and we trust that through your power and with your resources, we can do whatever it is. So Lord, I pray that you would make us faithful people, the very thing that sets us apart from the rest of this world in which we live. Make us people of faith and trust, people who say we can. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.